Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. In this episode, we're treated to a fascinating conversation between two filmmaking greats as Paul Greengrass chats with Mike Lee about his latest film, News of the World. In a wide-ranging discussion, Paul and Mike talk about the allure of the Western genre, what it takes to forge a directing career, and the state of the industry for emerging filmmakers. Just as a heads up, there is some strong language in this episode. We hope you enjoy it. Good. Good evening, everybody. Um, welcome. Hiya, Paul. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well, Mike. So good to be. Hey, good. It's so good to be with Directors UK, which is close to all our hearts. It's a wonderful organisation. So well, so it is, and you invented it. So congratulations. Well, but Charles, really. But there were a group of renegades of the Century Club. Yes. Well, I, I asked just before we started whether anyone thought that I, you needed introducing. And the general consensus was that one thing you don't need for our comrades in Directors UK is you don't need much of an introduction. I mean, for me, all I want to say is um, you are in a class by yourself. I know you already know I think this. Um, what you've done over the years has been extraordinary and not least extraordinary is your new film, which is... Uh, very moving, very um, beautiful, very remarkable, and and probably like everybody, I watched it this last weekend. So to say it's prescient would be an understatement. I mean, you know, um, that the um, anger amongst those frustrated and disappointed and bitter folk out there in the Wild West, uh, is somehow very familiar and resonant with very recent events. Um, so before we actually talk a bit about the, um, the making of the film and talking about the directing and so on, I wonder if you just feel like, Paul, just talking a bit about um, the, the context of the film and its political, um, what it meant for you. And, you know, as you discovered the book and the idea, and I know you, um, developed your own version of the script and so on. But just talk a bit about it from that point of view. What do you mean what well, it's about? Well, I think its roots actually lay in the last, the end, as so often, I'm sure you find this, one film sort of begets another and some of them you mine a seam, some of them you react and try and go in a different direction. I, I, the last film I did was 22 July, which was about the Anders Breivik right-wing attacks in Norway. Which was a great film, by the way. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. It means a lot. I, I, I was very, very, as we all were, concerned about the, the rise of right-wing extremists. It seemed to me it was coming hard and coming fast. And in the end, the film was about one family caught up in it and so on and so forth. But I couldn't... You, I mean, I, I I try to never make nihilistic films. I don't think I ever have. And I wanted it to be actually a sort of case study, an empirical case study of how a society, in this case Norway, responded to the right-wing threat and, and, and what lessons you could learn from that by following those characters. But it did leave me afterwards thinking, I mean, this problem of division and bitterness is so bad and, you know, like all of us, we're parents, you, you look at the world, we're bequeathing our kids and you think, well, what's the way out of this? 
So that feeling was in my mind. I don't know if you feel this, but often I find the film comes after I've seized on the question or settled on the question that I want an answer to, and the film becomes the answer to the question or a response to a feeling. So my feelings were very much several fold. What's the way out of this? I want to make a film that 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 is optimistic, that is a road out of this. I, I wanted the film, make a film to be absolutely frank, because I remember saying it at the time, 22 July was so dark, I wanted to make a film. I'd never made a film with a with an overtly happy ending. You know, I've never done that. They've always been partial and I wanted to see if I could do that. And I wanted to make a film, I mean, I've got sons and daughters, but my daughters were very much in mind because it was the story of a little girl. So those things were in my mind, those feelings were in my mind. How do we get out of it? What's the road out of it? And then I read the novel. And and as so often is the case, film serendipity being what it is, you read the book and you go, well, this is our world today. It's 1870 in Texas. It's the shadow of the Civil War. It's bitterly divided. And this lonely newsreader who goes from town to town reading old newspapers because he's lost everything. And then he meets the little girl and they go on the sort of strange journey. I thought, well, that's in their tiny ways, they're taking that road out. And and I thought, well, that's the film I'm gonna make because it, it speaks. But what was strange was as we made it, and particularly as we went into post, which would have been about this time last year, Everything started to happen that made it feel even more intensely relevant. You know, yeah, the pandemic, yeah. you know, the, the whole start with the meningitis and the cholera epidemic that takes his wife. And then, of course, all this business last week, it shows you that something is dying and something's being born, isn't it, in our world? And these are all the morbid symptoms attendant on the death and the birth. The question is, is what's being born to the good or is what's being born to the bad? I guess that's what we're going to find out over the next few years. And the great thing about your this film, in fact, all your films, is that you don't affect to come up with answers. You pose, it, you leave it for us. And although, yes, this is a film with a happy ending, it's not just, I mean, if it was just that, it would be, it wouldn't work. I mean, actually, there's enough you've got enough balls in the air for us to be left to go away and work on it for ourselves. And that's one of the great things about it. Let me ask you, let's change the subject a little bit, Paul. Um, what you're famous for and great at are, is um, what you might call um, epic events, but, the way, but looking at them by getting in there, getting in there. And I'm Apart from anything else, I think I'm, as much as anything else, talking about what you um, stylistically, uh, and obviously as a matter of personal taste, do with your camera, which mm. is in, very, very often to get in there close, mm. handheld a lot of the time, and, and not, to, not to do vistas. And the yeah. interesting thing about this film is you do do vistas. Mm. And it's in a way, it's a kind of, although in, it's got your fingerprints all over it it doesn't um it's not in any way an unpaul greengrass movie nevertheless it is in that sense it seems to me i may be wrong tell me 
different from all your other films. Can you I'm talk about that a bit and how you how you arrived at that and how you worked with um, Daria Swalski? Well, I wanted to do a different kind of film. I mean, I think, you know, you've done it masterfully so many times, changed direction and done something very different. And it's the hardest thing to do, isn't it? Because what you feel comfortable doing is what you feel comfortable doing and to go out of your comfort zone is 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 uncertain but in the end it's what keeps you young and fresh and i i grew up on westerns as a boy so i thought oh I, 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 this is great and also i wanted to slow my filmmaking down i wanted to try and make a film that was sort of classically wrought if i can put it that way because I'd never tried to make one that way. And that was a great sort of filmmaking experiment. I think I was, it, 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 I got involved in a, I didn't actually make it, but I was one of the people involved in a Netflix project called Five Came Back, which if anybody watching has not seen, uh, uh, so it's nothing to do, wasn't mine, but it was a based on a, it was, they took five directors from living directors to talk about the five great directors who went to the Second World War at the peak of their sort of Hollywood careers and they came back changed from their experiences. And I chose John Ford because I was very interested in John Ford when I was younger. So I think that was in my mind a lot. There's something about this story is really the searches in reverse. I mean, in search, yeah. you know, Wayne goes out to find the girl in the desert. In this, the girl is found at the beginning and it's the journey to try and create restitution. Did you, did you think about John Ford when you were making the film? Very much. Oh, you couldn't not. I mean, I remember um, sitting in the desert, very, I've got a very vivid memory and we laugh about it now, quite early on, myself, Darius, uh, Billy Goldenberg, who cut the film so beautifully, and James Newton Howard, who did that wonderful wonderful score and we were sitting out in the desert and it was about it was getting towards the end of the day and the light was beautiful you know and 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 I said to them you can literally you could just imagine Papa Ford you know what I mean? <laughs> standing here and you feel you know like you're scrambling up on the yeah, on the yeah. Of, of a giant you know as all those guys Sturgis the same they were great legends of the of the movie business and uh it was frightening in one way but you know what it's like you just have to go well we'll give it our best shot you know um you talked about um william goldenberg the editor um one of the other things that i i, I must ask you about is one of the most impressive things about the film i, I think is the very courageous pacing Mm -hmm. I mean, you hold pauses. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, what's great is that you've plainly been allowed to do that. You haven't had some stupid producer or anybody telling you you've got to speed it up or do all that. So in that sense, we, we, we look to you as being a lucky man. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and it, I must say, I don't say what I just have because I've ever had to experience that because I'm as lucky as you are. But um, it is very impressive the way you... Really take your time, more yeah. than somewhat. And yeah. that is obviously a deliberate 
um, decision on your part. Can you talk around that a bit and the way you worked with I, Bill Goldman? It was a strange journey for me, for filmmaking journey. All, all filmmaking journeys are strange. You know, I began at Granada, as you know. I began on World in Action. I began in, in the world of facts and reality. And you were taught to, you know, by Leslie Woodhead and all the other great people who were there, you know, you were taught to get back and tight and observe reality and, and try and pick your story out that way. And that's how I was taught. Very often you were handheld. George Jesse Turner, of course, was the maestro, you know, the cameraman par excellence for, for that. That's where I learned about life and about filmmaking and how to write and how to shoot and how to cut. And then later, of course, you know, when I became about 30, I wanted, I'd always had a, and it was a secret dream to make movies because I think I'd have been embarrassed to have said it and people would have laughed at me, you know? But when I then went off, I had to spend really my thirties, I suppose, learning the language of dramatic construction, you know, filmmaking construction, which is a different language. But I felt a growing frustration as the years went by because although I, could do it, and although I always worked, it never felt entirely me. My voice wasn't in it somewhere, and I'd write things, and then when I made them, they didn't, they always felt not quite right, and it became a crisis for me, really. Um, can you I, say what films, um, you may not want to say this, but what, well, what films yeah. of yours are, are, are suffered from that problem? Well, no, I we, think, we may not agree with you. No, I mean, I did a whole series of, you know, television films in at that period of time, and that culminated in a film called one, The One That Got Away, which is about an SAS raid behind in Iraq in, in the first, in Gulf War One, and, uh, and that was really where it came to a head. I'd sort of worked for 10 years by then. I just remember being on a night shoot in the desert with and it was an eight-man patrol, and you had all the technical problems of of lighting a pitch black desert in a way that was going to be vaguely credible as these guys. And then it was a dialogue scene. So it was an eight-way dialogue scene that I'd written. And I shot it and it was a night shoot. And I just remember being so disgusted with myself that when we broke for lunch at about three in the morning, whatever time it was, I said, I'm going to stay here. And I literally ended up banging my head against the back of this side of this truck because I knew that what I was shooting wasn't reflecting what I'd seen in my mind when I wrote it but I didn't seem to be able to have the expertise the confidence the knowledge the the courage ultimately to make it really work and it, it was like the film was you know I was quite pleased with it. Actually, weirdly, that was the making of me. There's nothing like failure to give you steel, I think, as a director. Yeah. Because I came out of it with a really cold determination that I was going to make the film next that I saw in my mind kind of or die trying, that sort of thing. And no one was going to get in my way. And I was not going to 
compromise. I was not going to accept any nonsense. And if it didn't work, then that would be it. And I'd go off and do something else. But somewhere that was the sort of mindset. I was very lucky because I had a wonderful producer, Mark Redhead, who's a dear friend of mine. And he, we talked about it and he said, well, do it, you know, in that way that you need, a, you know, always a great producer because a producer is the person in your corner or should be. Can you, can you identify what it was that you knew you had I, to do? I decided to shoot as I had originally shot when I was in my 20s, but import it into drama. You mean in world in action type? Yeah, story. exactly. And, and throw away the language of drama. And that was really what it was. And, and I suppose that was the making of me because the next film I did was Murder of Stephen Lawrence and that's what I did. And I vividly remember the first day shooting it like that, which was intensely first person. Ivan Strasberg shot it, and Ivan and I knew each other back from World in Action days. And I said, I don't want to do reverses. I'm not going to do them. I'm not going to shoot it like a drama. I'm going to shoot it like I would have done when I was 25, you know, and fuck it, frankly. When you, when you were making documentaries, you mean? Yeah. And at about four o'clock in the afternoon, I suddenly felt this horrendous feeling of a void beneath my feet as I suddenly thought, well, I'm going to turn up, you know, because you know, it's like on the TV show, and if you don't get your day, you're absolutely buggered. You know, you, I thought if this, I mean, I've got no coverage. I've got no, I haven't done any of the things that I've been doing for the last 10 years that have kept me in work. Uh, and that was when Mark came up to me because I started to do a reverse on Marianne Jean-Baptiste. And he said, uh -uh, you said you weren't going to do that. I said, but I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried. It's and he said, don't turn back now. And he was right. And that moment really was the making of me because that film worked. And what it was, was I found my voice. I found my courage, I think. And, and, then I did Bloody Sunday. And then I suppose when I made more commercial films, I started to bring that into more the commercial mainstream. And what was interesting about that, I think, was that I was surprised that I was allowed to do it. You know, that Bourne film that I made, I was surprised that they let, gave me my head in that sense and let me do it that way. It was only when I was when we were doing, then I did three, and then when I was doing Ball Ultimatum, we started shooting that Waterloo sequence. And that's when I realized what it was, because as we were shooting that Waterloo action sequence, I noticed that every time we pulled the cameras out, there'd be crowds of people with their mobile phones filming us. And I suddenly realized that weirdly, the aesthetic that I had been taught as a young man, which was handheld, art on, reportage, you know what I mean, um, that I'd brought into my, married with a drama storytelling and that was working for me, then bringing it into a commercial mainstream, it was meeting what a predominantly younger cinema-going audience were used to because they were themselves creating those loose, handheld, permissive images and wanted to see that reflected in, in mainstream cinema. And that's really, I think, how it happened. Let's talk a bit about this film. Mm -hmm. um, talk a bit about, I mean, what, what's, 
and this particular, particularly, this is of particular interest to me, is your incredible gallery of really believable and unromantic, unHollywood, uh, real people that we meet on on the journey mm-hmm. uh, here and there. I mean, talk, I'm interested in how you two things really, how you worked with those actors to get it where it is. Um, and I mean those guys. Not uh, we'll talk a bit separately about um, Tom Hanks and Helena Zengel in a minute, if you don't mind. But it's those other ones I'm interested. Oh. In. Also, and also Paul, how you um, prepared the crowds because the, your your support actors were incredibly. It was really good, and you'd obviously done something to um, motivate them in some way. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Well, I think. Honestly and truly, a lot to do with you and Ken. You know, if you grew up as I did on your films and on, you know, you understand. You're brought up to see a reality in 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 your films. You know, in a way that maybe in the big mainstream Hollywood movies is not so usual. There's a different sort of. Uh, there's a different thing goes on there. You know, and I'm I'm. So what did you do? I'm asking you what you did. Just you, well, first of all, in the writing of it, I wanted to create a relationship that involved the civil war with each character. Each character was a consequence of the civil war and was him or herself broken and lonely and searching for better days to come. That was the first thing. So they had a unity because it's a, it's a, it's a, a journey movie and a road movie inevitably means that you don't have the ability to create a cast of characters and drive them to a to a climax. You've essentially got a series of single scenes or sequences of scenes. You meet characters and then they leave the story and you meet another character and they leave the story. So that, that was really a writing concept. In the performance of it, it's just, I think, that I like things desperately underplayed, you know, and... Do you rehearse much? Uh, I don't rehearse before you shoot, before you go shooting. I mean, I'll talk intensely. Yeah. I actually don't do that, actually. Um, you rehearse? I, I, like, I like to have gone one-to-one with an actor so they really understand what I'm looking for and what's important to me and what's important to them before we before we get on set and then I like to make sure that they've all got lots and lots of time you know I'll prize everything to give them all the time and and then we'll go you know I think in the end there's a beauty to playing isn't there you know let's just yeah, play. Yeah. let's just play and see what happens and, about, and then how about the support crowd so i mean i take a lot of i mean i'm lucky you know your first ad is so important in in setting those things but i take an awful lot of care recruit who i recruit and you talk to them do you? oh very much so yeah i always uh always gather supporting artists together with cast at the beginning of a sequence and say we're a company what you do, you know, if you're in the back of a shot there, that is just as important as what Tom's doing at the front. And, you know... You've and you obviously share with them what it's about and what they, who they are and stuff. And I talk to them 
every session. In other words, every morning and every afternoon, I'll right. make, I will talk to them all as a group. And then I'll be talking to them just as much, you know, so, because it's amazing if you can show a supporting player that you've seen what they've done in the back there. And you've also seen what she's done over there. That, that creates a culture on your set where people want to play. They want to act because most, most are actors. They either want to be actors or they are it. And if you, if you, I mean, isn't it true in directing that believing in people is the most important thing? Believing in what they can do is the most important thing. Um, Can you talk a bit about um, Helena Zangle and how you came across her? And I understand that you didn't spend huge amounts of time scarring the world. (coughs) If you'd asked me at the outset, once I finished writing and we were starting, I thought, I remember saying the biggest problem is going to be to find the little girl to play. Yeah. Because it's, it's a proper role. I mean, she's not some, you know, in the structure of some pieces with a young actor, they're supported by adults around them. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Have to actually do anything, no. Yeah. She had to really do it. Oh yeah. And I thought this is going to take months and I'm going to see hundreds of people and it's going to end up being an agonizing decision. And if I get it wrong, it'll all be, a de- you know, those things go through your mind. Yeah. And then about a week later, um, they sent me the, the the copy of System Crasher, which I, if anybody's seen, it's a most remarkable German film. She's absolutely superb in it. She plays a sort of disturbed child. And I remember watching it thinking, because I, I knew I wanted a German girl to play, because the, the yeah. girl is German. She's part of a German immigrant. Um, I, uh, I just thought there's just, what are the chances of there being two 11-year-old girls in Germany this good? And then... I met her and tested and worked with her for an afternoon. She was just remarkable. She was just, I remember saying to her, "You do you like acting? She said, oh, I love it. She said, I love it. It's the my favourite thing to do in the whole world. So I, I it, it turned out to be the easiest decision. I heard that she's a, she she loves horses as well anyway. Is that right? Exactly. That That's when you know it has to be because I said, oh, yeah. Can you ride? And she said, oh, yes, I have a horse. So, oh, well, that's obviously <laughs> And the first day, I mean, obviously, you're nervous because it's, is she going to perform? She's thousands of miles from home. You know, it's Tom. It's a big crew. Um, and she just was fantastic. We played that first scene, actually, where she meets Tom in the woods. Yeah. And it was so good. And I remember Tom coming over to me after a couple of takes and saying, my God, he said, she's fantastic. And she just, and she had a point of view, you know, she, if I'd say something, she'd say, well, I don't think so. You know, <laughs> I mean, she was very cooperative and easy, but yeah, she yeah. had a point of view, you know. Can you talk about, there's one scene that's really extraordinary where there's a very long conversation they have while, while they're travelling along. Uh, mm. That's the one in which at some point she suddenly speaks German. Yeah. Um, mm. I mean, that. That's a fascinating piece of cinema in its own right. That my favourite scene in the movie. Actually. Oh, is it? Is it? It is. Talk yeah. about that a bit and how you how you worked on it and so. Well, uh, it's the midpoint of the film, and you know the the relationship has to start to build. 
in truth, it has started a little bit before then, and then there's the big shootout sort of action sequence thing that ends up with them bonding, essentially. Yeah. He puts the blanket over her, and and then they have this long dialogue scene, and it's Darius shot it just exquisitely in the, the sun and the canvas on the wagon, and I just wanted it to be beautiful, and I wanted it to be what it would have been two people who couldn't speak each other's language wandering along at slow pace and i wanted it to evoke the better world the better world of their imaginations the better world of their translations the natural world you know they were in a a kind of eden with the buffalo and the cacti and yeah great and she played it so beautifully and then you get right away from the danger and then, of course, at the end it comes back. Talking of the danger, can you just talk a little bit about, because I know some people will be really interested in this, in shooting the shootout? Yeah. Well, well, I like those sequences. I like, I, like, I mean, look, action is... Yeah, because rather than talk, because we're going to run out of time before too long, rather than just talk about the practicalities of actually doing that scene, how you went about it. Well, the practicalities were you've got to construct it in a series of acts and then you've got to play those acts and solve the problems of them, you know, so if you're going to be driving a wagon very fast and lots of safety... But you and the, you and the gang, the crew, were actually on those rocks. And for oh, me. my God, yeah. We had to... The, those rocks were the most difficult part of all because we had to literally climb up on ropes. It took us about two hours in the morning to get up there. Uh, and then a lot of us had to be tied on around the camera and and because you know, there was a lot of safety issues. And then for good measure, you'd have a nice sort of few families of rattlesnakes around. And although we had snake wranglers to clear the place of snakes, uh, you know, for the couple of days before we get there, they'd come out. I mean, you'd be shooting and then, you know, somebody would tap you on the shoulder and say, you know, there's a rattle eight foot behind you and they'd come in with a bucket and pick it up. but. So it was pretty challenging. And then it, getting down, you have to rappel down. So it was it was a physical challenge, but I think everybody, I think it was a very happy shoot. Everyone in that film, I think, really loved it because the physicality of it, I think, brought us all together, made it. And we were in the desert in the same place, you know, for months on end. You, you know, you, 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 you develop strong bonds. I'm going to pull in a couple of questions. Um, here's a an off-the-wall question for you. This is from Anke Ludica, and she says, what was the visual language of walkabout, sorry, what's the visual language of walkabout, Nicholas wrote, an inspiration in terms of showing individuals in a landscape? Oh, I mean, look, it's a hugely influential film, and I, yeah. I remember seeing it. But was I, it an inspiration? I don't think it was a direct inspiration, but it's all that lodges in your memory, Ben. Yeah. I think much more would be Ford, the Westerns, keeping the focus intimate and broad and, and driving the middle ground out. That was the key, I think. In the um, uh, scene at Durand, yeah. the, um, the, the sort of... Uh, Buffalo Town. Buffalo Town, the anarchic, all of that. Um, I'm interested in, of course, being... Um, deploy quite a lot of improvisation in what I do. Was there any improvising in that scene? 
I mean, I know it's a very scripted film, and you uh, don't. Um, you... Uh, that I mean, the speech wasn't the speech. No, 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 no. But in the, um, in the realization of it, I mean the the supports the supports you've got to lay all that in and get that work yeah. and improvise that and work. You know, I worked for good a good half night, I think, probably getting setting all that and getting those little pockets re real, but. But in the end, it was quite a simple scene when you get down to in the town square. You had to work quite a bit with the stunts for the shootout, you know, to make yeah. the of that yeah. work. Um, say that. I'm going to be really, really naughty. And I shouldn't really ask this question that Bruce Goodison has asked. But I do. I'm going do to ask it. Because it's such a ridiculous question for him to ask. It's, it's, such, it's so tasteless of him to ask this question. And the question Bruce Goodison asked is this. Which Mike Lee films affected you most, Paul? Oh, my word. Oh, my I don't word. want you to spend too much time on this, and I'll interrupt you very soon. I mean, honestly and truly, all of them. You know, you know that I sent, you know, about six months ago, I had a, I had a Mike Lee season for myself. I, I don't know how everybody else watched that. I like. I often watch. You know, I'll watch indiscriminately, but but often I'll say I'm going to have a Dustin Hoffman season. I'll watch four or five films in a row. You know, I mean, you know, I was just lost in wonder. I mean, Vera, what a masterpiece that is. You know, Mister. Okay, Turner, thank you. You've answered that question. Let's move. <laughs> but I watched them. I watched. Right. I think half a dozen, and they cool. were I don't wish to discuss this anymore. Let's move on. <laughs> I want to ask you about the music because it's what's great about the music, apart from the music itself, which is a lovely score, is it doesn't crash through and upstage everything and it's got taste. Talk about how you worked on that with James Newton Howard and all the rest. James of is a superb, I mean, he's scored so many movies and I'd always wanted to work with James and it had never worked out. And then we, we met on this film and He's a delightful man and a most beautiful pianist and a beautiful composer. And I, I said at the outset, I had an idea, which is that this would be a concert of players who'd been away at the Civil War and come back, their bodies and their instruments broken, and the score would be a journey towards the finding of harmony because that would really echo the journey of the characters, you know. And that was what we were actually discussing when we were out in on the, sitting in the desert that time, and uh, and he took that and he has such exquisite good taste and he, you know, he 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 got a theme and he worked it and worked it and then it slowly unfolded, and it just had discretion and dignity and a gospel route which is quite risky because that can be unfelt and he made it truly felt I thought yeah. and then occasional moments when he was symphonic and they were always beautifully chosen obviously when he got, comes back for the girl because it's it's a movie and you want to work in a cinematic register at that point at least I did and uh, and that sort of you know was a throwback to the westerns of of old for me. In fact, what one of my, you may disagree with this, but actually what was great about I thought um, is that it, it, it's one of its strengths, the score was how much subtler it was than many a score and many a Western, really. 
mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it really didn't, um, well, it just is incredibly sensitive. And, and yeah. actually, it sits with, the, we talked earlier about the pacing, the courage you have to do slow pacing in the editing, and those things sit so well together. I think that's one of the great successes of uh, courageous um, things that you've done. Well, that film, the film, the, the relationship between myself and Billy, we worked on 22 July, and he's a a really brilliant editor and, and and you know editors in America are a little bit different I think they push more I think than they're, they're, they're expected to push more which is good push more into the creative process you know what I mean they'll they'll strongly advocate points of view and he's a he's a a, a lovely man but a brilliant editor but the relationships between myself and him and James uh, and Darius were very, very close and strong, you know, and we all saw it the same way, I think. And uh, and I said to them all at the outset, I, I, I don't want to push hard on this film. I want to slow right down. I've done a, you know, something, 22 July was was quite a bit slower. I was, I'm in the process of, because, you know, I made those Bourne movies and one, two hours where you're pushing, pushing, pushing. And that's interesting. I enjoyed finding the sort of leading edge of pace and where you could take that. But it's good to change, change and be more classically wrought and see where you get to. Very good. Um, do you, do you, do you, you don't use storyboards, do you? I don't, no, I don't. I'll tell you what I do do. I have a sort of developed over the years a sort of odd thing that I do. Um, it's it's not really an animatic and it's not a storyboard. It's kind of a um, mixture of off-the-cuff little drawings I'll do um, or, or, or people will do, you know, I, but really... What I try to, I, I don't want something that that takes time because that's not going to help me. What I am interested in is is suggesting images in real location. So once I've decided I'm going to shoot here, and I've photographed it, you know, either it's been photographed or I've photographed it myself, then I'll start to play with those images and and assemble them like in a slideshow, and then I'll animate on top of them, very crude drawings. And, and start to suggest. And that helps unlock for me questions of tempo and, and questions of, of kind of um, exactly how one location is going to run into the other. You know, we flow. Flow and tempo are, are really the important issues for me. I don't need storyboards in that sense and I don't need full animatics because I'd never shoot them but what I want is a tool that can say to me yes I need to hold back here or yes I need to push here or I need to be broad and big and wide here and then play this scene more like that make it more about I don't know make it I'm speaking it yeah more about figures in a landscape less about. It, it, it is about reacting I mean this is what I've find and do as well of course it's about you, you need to react to the location to the yeah. what what's actually there what you can actually see it's not in your head really yeah. um i was watching an interview with with, Falaf, with steven spielberg a very good documentary about him on sky i think it was and 
he said at one point in the doc, and it was very striking, he said, you know, no matter how many films I've made, he said, when I go into a scene, doesn't matter what the scene is, I feel nervous. Because in the end, I know that I don't really know what I'm going to do, no matter how much preparation I've done or not. Yeah. You know what I mean? And he said, and this is the interesting, he said, I know that I need to feel that sense of anxiety to respond to the to respond to the actors, respond to location, to respond to it all and, and start to do whatever it is we do. Do you feel that? I do. I do. I've I do I do fight nerves. I do get I, I feel intense nerves before I go on set. Bit bit like sporting nerves is how I think of them. You know, I, I, I kind of have to get psyched up. And then when I go on, I've got to drive for five hours until lunch and then I'll go and then, you know, steal myself and then go out again for another five years, five hours. It's it's a sort of a drive thing. But I do, I do get nervous, yeah? Yeah. I don't have it every day, but I do, or every scene, but I, I've never made a film yet where I didn't at some point or substantial points think this is the fuck up. Oh, this, definitely. This yeah. is the one that's, this is the one that's going to get away. This is a, and a friend of mine who died recently, a close friend who's not in the business, a retired architect, crop circle expert. I used to call him up. I've always used to, I've always called him up on a regular, to see how he is basically. Mm -hmm. Not well. Mm -hmm. He wasn't well. And I, um, He'd say, how's it going? And I, in the middle of a shoot, and I'd say, it's a disaster. It's terrible. And he'd say, you always say that. It'll be great. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, and I, I think we... But you have to believe it, don't you? you it, yeah. it, unless you face the terror, and I'm, I don't know, who, you know, all, all the people watching this, uh, you know, you all direct... That is what the job is. The job is to face... You know, pe people talk, here's an interesting thing, but writers talk about the tyranny of the blank page. And, and you know, those of us who write to know what that feels like, the tyranny of a blank page you've got to fill. But directing and is the same because when you walk out on set, there's a thousand moving parts, an actor with a headache, the set you've, you've had to change at the last minute. You don't have enough money to do this. You know, this, that... And out of those thousand uncertainties and moving parts, you have to, as the director, render something that makes sense, that serves the story and drives it on. And, and you have to face terror every day. You know, you do. Well, you pay your money and it takes your choice. I remember um, my dad, who's now 95 years old, um, was at sea all his life. Um, and he was away a lot when I was a kid. Um, anyway, when I made Captain Phillips, we had a screening, and it was the last time he was ever able to come off see a film. Why he's too infirm after that. Anyway, he came, and I made a little speech, and I said, uh, you know, as I get older, I realize something to the effect of I realize I'm my father's son, you know, because. In many, he was at sea, and in many ways, when you make a film, it's the same. You have a you have a map. It's called a script, and you have a crew, and you have to take the cargo 
and your job is to get it across the sea and deal with the weather and deal with all the rest of it and get it to port safely. And I thought it was quite a pretty little speech. Anyway, afterwards, I went to see him and he said, what the fuck was all that? I did a proper job. Not all that. Not all that stuff that you do having lunch with people. What are you talking about? <laughs> talking of your dad, Kieran yeah. Bourne, who presumably no relation to your various Bourne films, says, I heard during your BAFTA lecture that your father said shaky cam was like not being not being able to direct directly piss into a pot. Right. What are your rules for directing handheld and how did you find your voice for this film? Well, you've already answered the last part of that question, but um, I thought it was worth quoting your dad on well, that. The, I, the answer to any shot, in my view, is that it, each shot has to have a drama to itself. In other words, if you are here and you go to here, it has to be something that is not easy. It has to be a move of peril and drama, I think, to intersect with an actor whose, whose moment in that shot is becoming. And if the becoming and the becoming meet, you have something that gives you a piece that you can put with another piece and another piece. And if you put a thousand of those together, that's a film. So in answer to the specific question, it doesn't matter whether, it, I take it you're saying, it doesn't matter whether it's a handheld shot or a crane shot or any sort of shot, or just a shot on oh. an ordinary tripod. It's what's needed and what its function is. Yeah, exactly. Nothing special about handheld shots. Exactly. When I look at your films, it's the specificity that makes them, the way that you've worked for months with those actors together to get absolute specificity. And specificity is, I think you'd agree, the core of all good filmmaking, performance, Absolutely. camera work, everything, directing. Absolutely. So Russell Levin, or Levin, asks, says this, I've heard you say that if the script is 85% of your ideal vision in a film, then delivering 15% of that vision in the final cut is a good result. Was that the case with News of the World? Did I say that? Doesn't Probably not, but Russell thinks you did. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, um, the key in filmmaking is control. It, that is, and, and all of us struggle for control. You know, I'm lucky I have control and, and you do too, Mike, but, but you have to earn it and, and uh, protect it. Uh, and the getting of it involves native cunning, deploying your arguments as best you can, and hoping for a good percentage rate of, of good ideas, because not all of our ideas are good ideas, but, but you've just got to work on the basis that if you can push ideas, you will develop the confidence or carry the confidence of the people around you and get to a better place. But, but it's all about control, because control enables you to enact your vision. And that's the absolute 
journey, I think, of any director is to try and develop the muscles, the sinews. And, you know, one of my bugbears, and I'll go off on one now, there's people in Directors UK know, is that, that, that what's difficult, I think, for, for our colleagues in television is that the system is designed to, to make it much harder for directors, perhaps than it was for you and I, Mike. Oh, you know? definitely. No because, because the problem is that the, the executives now think that they are the creative authors of the piece. Absolutely. And that is the problem. Absolutely. It's got worse. I, I know, yeah. It's got worse. Yeah. Mm. I mean, you know, when I mean, you, you did a lot of work for Granada. I did all my those films for most of the BBC, apart from Mean Time, which was an early Channel 4 film. <clears throat> um, and you had total, total freedom. Mm. So come in, and I did what I've always tried to do and only lately run into trouble with, which is to say, can't tell you what the film's about. Give us the money, we'll make a film, and you'll know what it is when you've got it. Now, I've done it for you forever. Only now have I run into trouble with respect, it. Respect, Mike, respect. That's yeah. the way to do it. <laughs> um, but uh, um, it, it was great at the BBC. You'd go in and they'd say, well, okay, we don't know what it's about, but um, these are the dates. That's the budget. Go away and make a film. And there was only, apart from the head of plays or whatever he was called, and a producer, and it was great. And it is a disease. There's no question about it. It's, yeah, yeah. And they had great producers there, didn't they? I mean, Ken Trodd being one. Did you ever work with Ken? Yes. I made Four Days in July, the Irish film with him. And Tony Garnett. And I mean, they, they were protectors of creative freedom, weren't Absolutely. they? Absolutely. was their job, you know. Um, but anyway. Let's talk a little bit, Mike, before we end, about... Because Directors UK, directors in the UK at the moment, I mean... It's not. It's not all bad. The, the the standard of directing, I think, in in the UK now, it, it has always been high. But it, you know, you travel the world. People really respect and admire. And I'm not talking about. You know, I'm talking about the, the television directing. I think the the things that are being made are really interesting. So there are lots of opportunities. That's yeah, the good yeah. thing. And I think it's really good that Directors UK is here. It's now a sort of mature organisation now. Yeah. And, and those of us like Charles Sturridge and, you know, all the others who, who really played a role in building. It's a fantastic thing to see it because for young directors, it's a we didn't have an organisation like that. No. Really important to, to share you know, the, the loneliness of being a director, particularly yeah. a young director, when you're getting a, you know, you're getting an absolute pasting from an executive or, you know, notes in triplicate from people you've never even met or you can't get the casting in the part that you want. It, it, the, the collegiate power of directors is a very important thing. It may not solve a daily problem, but it makes you feel like you're part of a community of directors and that is really, really important, I think, as we move forward, you know, that, 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 that younger directors can feel part of a community because it replaces, in a way, 
the Granadas that I started at, the BBC where you work, you know, places that sustained you. It, it, it's it's a way of of feeling part of a community, and yes, I think absolutely that's really important. Um, Torrell digs it, makes the following interesting off-the-wall observation. We have gone from being interior designers to painters and decorators. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's, Very yeah. good. Well yeah. done, Torrell. Um, but, but, but we can change things, you know. It, yes. it, it, it can get better and it will get better. And and this is the organisation that can help fashion that, you know. You've been asked by Marcus Plowright. Mm -hmm. Any reflections on the late, great Michael Apted and your time at Granada? What's the main thing you've carried on? We've talked about. Michael, I mean, I, I, mean I, I spoke about this the other day. I mean, look, Michael was a outstanding director and i think absolutely seven up is just a yeah it'll be watched and studied a hundred years from now yeah. as a piece of social history as a piece of documentary filmmaking and it's the drama of it you know if you want to call it that he was one of the nicest nicest people but he was really the the the, the inspiring figure behind the creation of Directors UK. Because when we all gathered in the Century Group and were agitated for change, you know, he came over, he was then the head of the DGA and he encouraged everybody, you know, do it, let's set up an organization, I'll help, I'll be there. And I know that he was a constant source of encouragement, you know, Charles and everybody else and, and every director we all owe him a great, great debt for Absolutely. his creativity, but also for his his role in building building this organisation. Well, I think we've reached the end. Well, Mike, it's been an absolute privilege and a joy, and I can't thank you. For and it's a great film. I hope it I hope it does what it deserves to do out there. Whether you think it's a a what a commercial film or not, but I think it should be, and I'm sure it is. And um, I'm sure it'll do very well. And you'll. And I um, hope that um, Helena gets prizes. Helena's she's a sweet, yeah, she's going to have a big career for sure. Uh, well, thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks, everybody. And good luck to you all. And lots of love to you, Paul. And yeah, good luck to you. And let's have lunch when we're allowed to, when the, uh, when the vaccines come in. I look forward to it. Take really? care. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or your favourite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.